You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Science is about discovery. New findings, such as the Earth is round, apparently that just in. New observations of black holes, investigations into perplexing phenomena, for example, how cats lap up milk, that sort of thing, eureka and all that. But we're interested today in what's gone missing in science. That's why I have here the science classified want ads. This is Are We Alone? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Well, Seth, before we dive into the want ads that you have there, figuring out what's missing in science is often a matter of when you ask the question, because evidence that is missing is often discovered in time. For example, you know, a fossil that shows the transition between reptiles and birds was missing for a long time. Scientists hadn't found it, but now we do have it. Right. When Mendeleev was developing the periodic table 150 years ago, there were some blank spots. For example, he was looking for an element that had properties like silicon, but heavier. It was missing, but not for long. Soon chemists found germanium, and it plugged the gap. And germanium was used in the first transistors, but these days they're made out of silicon. Otherwise, our studio would be in the germanium valley. Right. And if we had talked about this subject 50 years ago, we might have longed for an explanation why the eastern bulge of South America fits so nicely into the coastline of Africa. The point is, the thing about science is that things that are known to be missing because a theory says they must exist are frequently and eventually found. And that's because scientists go look for them since they know what they're looking for. Their tools get better and so forth. Okay, well, what's what's missing today? What do you have there in the paper? Seth, the science classifieds. Oh, let me see here. Oh, <laughs> here's a good one. Wanted, a cure for the cold. Well, Molly, you know it has to be out there somewhere, but scientists haven't found it. <laughs> that, that ad's probably been in the classifieds for a long time. How about something that's missing that's a little grander in scale? Okay. Anything like that? Well, let me look in the grander column. <laughs> oh, here you go. Wanted, an explanation for 72% of the universe. Wow, that's gone missing, 72% of the universe. What else, what else does it say there? Uh, it's mysterious and blowing space apart cosmologists in the dark about what it is. If found, call, and then there's a number down oh, here. call it. If there's a number, call it. All Let's right. find out more. Okay. Hello, this is Saul Perlmutter at the University of California, Berkeley, and Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. Saul, this is Seth Shostak with the Science Radio Show, Are We Alone? Uh, you're a cosmologist, and I read your ad. What is this stuff? Well, we've discovered that the universe is doing something a little bit unexpected. It's speeding up as it expands. So it gets bigger and bigger, faster and faster. And we suspect 
that there may be an energy that we call dark energy, and it may make up, oh, three-quarters of all the stuff of the universe, and we don't know what it is or where it is. Well, now, wait a minute. Why do we think it's really there? I mean, if it's missing, why do we need it to exist? Well, you need something that would power this amazing expansion of the universe to the point that it's going faster and faster as it expands. And one of the simplest ways, perhaps, to do it is if you can put a energy that pervades all of empty space. Well, what do we know, Saul, about dark energy? It's, it's something that's pushing the universe apart. It's uh, causing the universe to blow up like a balloon. Do we know anything about what it is or, or its properties? We have very little to go on so far. We know that it has this rather unusual property that it has to have a certain bounciness to it, springiness to it, that makes the universe reproduce faster. So you get more and more universe faster and faster. And that particular springiness is something that we try to measure by going back and doing that same kind of measurement, the history of the expansion of the universe, but with much, much more detail. And in the end, we hope that that will begin to help us differentiate the different possible explanations for what's going on. Well, could you dare to guess what it might be? I mean, it's, it's not a particle. It's not something you could put into a, a bottle and, and, and shake around, is it? I mean, is, is it just... No, I mean, any ordinary stuff that we're used to, you know, touching, seeing... All those things that are made out of material that we know how springy they are, they are not very springy, and in fact, they, they would all make the universe slow down. And so it has to be in a completely different category of substance. And this is a, why it's actually such a surprise to the physics world. We've been doing very well accounting for everything we see with what they call the standard model of physics. You can predict things down to you know, many, many decimal places, and yet it could be that Three-quarters of the universe is in the form that we haven't even included in the current studies. Okay, but Saul, is there any chance that this dark energy could all just be a mistake? I mean, the, the, the claim that it exists depends on measuring exploding stars, supernovae, and galaxies far, far away. Maybe the astronomers have calibrated those exploding stars incorrectly. I mean, could dark energy just be a measurement error? When we first saw the results, we'd done all the cross-checks to be fairly confident that we weren't just making a simple mistake. And over the next few years, there have now been other techniques that have been used to triangulate in on the problem, and it looks now as if there is definitely something going on. Now, when we say that we have to find what the dark energy is, it's sort of a shorthand for we have to explain why we're seeing the surprising acceleration of the universe, it's surprising brightnesses of supernova and densities of clusters. So there's a constellation of measurements now which all agree that there's something here about the fundamentals of cosmology that we have to get at. We call it dark energy. It could be that the equations of Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is how we describe gravity, needs some updating. And that would be shocking because it's an amazingly successful theory and it's amazingly well-tuned. It works so well to explain the measurements that we see. But it's possible that the explanation will not be dark energy. It will be something else in our theory that we have to modify. So we know its characteristics, but not what it is. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't know, altruism or something. We don't quite know what it is. And, and we have a number of different theoretical ideas that people are putting out there. And in fact, it's probably been averaging a rate of a new paper with another idea every three, four days for the past decade. <laughs> so it's, it's not that we're out of ideas. But what we need, really need is some hard data to begin to focus us in on which class of these ideas would be the most likely at this stage. Well, there's a planned NASA infrared telescope called the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, or 
W first. If you want to economize on breath, that might tell us more about dark energy? Absolutely. The idea is that you can take the same kind of measurement we did before using supernova, and you can do it with maybe 20 times more precision and begin to parse apart these different possible theoretical explanations. But you really want to use more than one technique. And so the idea of a project like WFIRST is to get at dark energy with several different techniques. But WFIRST is in trouble. Well, it's always really hard to pull together the resources and the commitments from all of the different parts of society to build something as big as a space telescope. So we've definitely gone through ups and downs. We've uh, we've had periods in which we were going ahead tomorrow, and then for one reason or another, uh, it can't happen at this time, it can't happen at that moment, but we think that there are some ways that things could really move forward again in this coming year or so, and we're hoping that there's a new push and that we get to really work on the project. The amazing thing here is that we live at a moment in history where we're getting a chance to perhaps explore one of the biggest questions that we've come across. Saul Perlmutter, thank you so much for talking with me. Sure, glad to help. Okay, bye now. So Saul Perlmutter, a physicist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, is in the dark about dark energy, but he hopes that WFIRST, the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, will enlighten him. But Seth, it sounds as though WFIRST may not be launched anytime soon. I wonder what's up with that, Molly, because I don't understand why NASA doesn't give it priority. I mean, it's trying to answer a really big picture question. Do you think it's just a matter of missing money? I don't know. I wonder who can answer that. Maybe I can answer that. Alan Stern. He's an ex-associate administrator for Earth and Space Science at NASA and a private aerospace consultant. Alan, gosh darn it, this wide-field infrared survey telescope, the WFIRST telescope, it just doesn't seem to be first at all. I mean, it's a really important instrument that could answer questions from habitable planets to the nature of dark energy, but NASA's not building it. What gives? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. Of course, WFIRST was just proposed in the um, Decadal Survey for Astronomy that was released this year. And so really the first that NASA had a chance to uh, consider the project was only in 2010. And, of course, a lot more study is required in order to come up with a a feasible and affordable design. And then also the agency has to find the budget for it by finishing current projects to make room for new projects. That's always the case. Unfortunately, there's a third problem in the mix now, and that is that NASA is currently within its astronomy program carrying out a really gargantuan project called the James Webb Space Telescope, which everyone who's following the story knows is years late and very, very far over budget. And when you live on a fixed budget, in order to finish projects currently being built, you really only have two choices. You may either cancel those and forgive the sunk costs, walk away, or to finish them, you must put off, you must delay starting new things that you'd like to do. I mean, this isn't the only interesting project that's been shunted aside thanks to James Webb, isn't it? I mean, there's the terrestrial planet finder. NASA's been thinking about that for a long time, a device that not only sees planets around other stars, but, you know, might also find oxygen in their atmosphere, suggesting that they have life of some sort. But that's been shut down, too, and that's also a budget problem. Yes. The nature of the problem with the James Webb Space Telescope is that it's such a large project that until it's finished, the rest of the future astronomy portfolio will have to wait. There just isn't enough budget for astronomy to start anything new until James Webb, which is soaking up most of the available resources, starts to decline in its budget needs. And that's going to be many, many years, probably very late in this decade, 2017, 18, 19, some say even 2020. The James Webb telescope is also an infrared telescope. 
Can it do the same things as WFIRST? Well, I think it can do some of the things that WFIRST does, but obviously WFIRST being a highly optimized telescope to go a step farther than James Webb does some things better than JWST can do, does some things not as well. They're really different tools for different purposes, just like you have different cameras for different purposes in your camera cabinet. Maybe we should just face the facts, Alan, because it does seem to be a fact that telescopes, at least very big telescopes, always seem to cost more than we think. I mean, it seems that you should just multiply the estimates by pi and you get the right answer. That's certainly true in radio astronomy. That's one approach. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There are other approaches, including uh, better management of the projects at hand. Maybe the fundamental problem is that we simply don't fund space science very well. I mean, a lot of people think of NASA as having this huge budget, but it's like, you know, one part in a thousand of the federal budget, if it's that much. Is that the fundamental problem that we just, you know, don't spend very much money on space? I'm actually a subscriber to a different philosophy. I think that we don't manage our projects well. We don't cancel things that get sufficiently far out of control that the agency ends up in a hostage situation. We don't make examples of the managers and space program executives who are responsible for big multiple cost overruns. And as a result, people know who are developing projects that they're almost immune to either being let go or having their project canceled. And therefore, there's no incentive to stay on cost. And that's a real problem. So you think that the NASA budget is approximately where it ought to be, that we should just be getting more bang for our bucks? I don't want to speak to the proper level for the NASA budget, but what I am saying is is that it's entirely possible, I think, and I think from experience, to get, uh, say, twice as much mileage out of the budget as what we're getting today. And then we would be starting a lot of new projects like WFIRST, were we not in a position of having projects like James Webb that started off as a billion-dollar cost estimate that are now soaring into the 7 and $8 billion range. Alan Stern, thanks so much for uh, enlightening me. Very happy to do it, Seth. Oh, by the way, I take it you can find your way out? Well, I'm a rocket scientist. I usually can't find my way out without some help. Well, how nice of aerospace consultant and planetary scientist Alan Stern to drop by and answer that question about NASA's priorities, and just at the moment we asked it, too. I know, it's really uncanny, isn't it? Maybe you should have at least showed him the door, Seth. Okay, we hope NASA finds more funding for science. Meanwhile... There are more missing pieces coming up on Gone Missing from Are We Alone? From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, the Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less. So you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Molly, in this age of discovery, we're reviewing what hasn't yet been discovered, what's gone missing. And luckily, these want ads from this newspaper, remember newspapers, clue us in. Glad I subscribed to this rag, Science Classifieds. There's also a section for used lab equipment and and discounts on lab rats if you buy in bulk. I know. What is that? A rat pack? Seth, what else is listed in the missing section? Let's see. Lost albedo. Hey, I think there are pills for that. (laughs) Uh, Keep reading. Okay. Uh, Loss of albedo in northern hemisphere higher than climate models estimate. 
If found, please call Arctic Circle Hotline and or Greenland Gazette. Okay, albedo, also known as reflectivity. Now, the Earth needs that. The ice and the snow reflect sunlight back into space, and that's really important because that keeps the planet from overcooking. And when the ice and snow disappear, as is happening in the Arctic... Well, then the reflectivity goes down. Yeah, I've heard about this, Molly, how Arctic sea ice, winter snow, the Greenland ice sheet... They're all bouncing less energy back into space than they did 30 years ago. Well, that's right. And that means more than just a warmer atmosphere. More sunlight baking Earth means ice and snow melt further, which means less sunlight is reflected back into space, which means more sunlight comes in and is absorbed by the Earth. And that means that the ice and snow melt even further. And that's what's known as a feedback. So albedo, reflectivity, is not anything that we want to go missing. But, you know, Seth, I don't know how we'll find it. This ad may actually be in the classifieds for a long time, Mm. sadly. Here's a Lulu. Missing. Large, furry, elephant-like creature tusks down to its knees. (laughs) Okay. When was it last seen, this creature? Uh, 10,000 years ago at the end of the Pleistocene. Well, that sounds like the woolly mammoth. And we're missing woolies so much, scientists want to bring them back. Believe it or not, researchers in Russia, Japan, and the U.S. are planning on cloning this hirsute beast. They're taking frozen tissue, extracting the nuclei, where the DNA is, and putting that into an elephant embryo. At least that's the plan. I'm Darren Croft. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Anatomy at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Now, Darren, there are plans underway to clone the woolly mammoth. Now, this is an animal that's been extinct for 10,000 years. Is it technically feasible that one could bring him back? I think it's fair to say that it's theoretically feasible to do it. The real challenge is getting the right material that we can put into a living cell that will then end up giving us a clone mammoth. Okay, when you say the right material, we're talking DNA, right? We're talking DNA, but also the nucleus, which is the organelle, so the little part of a cell that actually holds the DNA. And what these scientists have proposed is to take the nucleus, so this little organ within a cell of a mammoth, and to put that into a cell of an elephant, which is very closely related, and the idea being that then that cell could start to divide and end up giving you a mammoth. Now, where did this cell come from? Where did they get the genetic material of this woolly mammoth that has not walked this planet for 10,000 years? Well, we haven't found any woolly mammoth cells yet, but scientists have found pieces of DNA, so the, the chemical code that can encode a mammoth. And these are preserved in areas of permafrost, areas that are permanently frozen in places like the tundra of northern Russia. And people have been finding frozen mammoths for a long time, The question now is, have the conditions been good enough so that we can actually get these very small pieces of their DNA and cells, get enough information that we can actually form a whole mammoth? Mm -hmm. Why do scientists want to do this? Why do they want to bring back the woolly mammoth? Well, I think there are a few reasons why someone might want to bring back the woolly mammoth. Fundamentally, it would just be neat to see one. Now, the real question is, ethically, is that something that we should do or not? And I think this is a good time to start thinking about the various ethics of bringing back extinct animals. For me, as a paleomimologist, it could be very interesting to see an animal like this move. You know, we have to kind of work theoretically to figure that out, and that's something that you could get if you had one living right in front of you. The problem is, of course, it's going to be out of its normal context. It's not going to be in the same environment it lived in 10,000 years ago, so you have to be a little suspicious about how it would act or anything like that, assuming we could actually get to the point where we get an adult mammoth. Well, that raises a question of what would it look like if I were to open the, the blinds one day and see a woolly mammoth brought back from extinction? What would it look like? 
A woolly mammoth, I think, unless you were really into your, your living in fossil elephants, would look a lot like a hairy elephant. And this would have long, reddish-brown hair. And we know this because we have preserved hair from fossil mammoths, so we know what their hair looked like. And some of the largest mammoths had very long, curving tusks. So not quite the straight curve like you'd see in an elephant that's alive today walking on the savannas of Africa, but rather with a little bit of a twist that gave it a little bit more of a curve to it. So they would have been very impressive animals, very large animals, larger than the elephants that are alive today. Sort of like Snuffleupagus, I think, for those of you who are Sesame Street fans, <laughs> except a fair bit bigger. And make the kids happy, at least. Uh, finally, Darren, this concept was floated in the film, okay, it was a film, Jurassic Park, and the idea of bringing back dinosaurs from DNA trapped in mosquitoes, and the mosquitoes were trapped in the, in the amber, I believe. And that was considered total science fiction. It actually couldn't be done. Has anything changed since that movie came out? Well, I'll start by saying I was a big fan of that concept. I think it's a great example of a way to get people excited about science and talking about science. There are a couple major differences between the scenario proposed in Jurassic Park and what we're talking about with a mammoth. One big advantage to working with a mammoth is that we're looking at DNA and cells that are maybe 10,000 years old, whereas with a dinosaur, you're looking at cells that are 65 million years old, so a thousand times older, and that gives us much better odds of finding what we need in terms of an intact cell. The other advantage that we have is that mammoths are very closely related to elephants that are still alive today, and that makes it technically a lot easier because we could take this cell from a mammoth if we were able to put this little piece of the mammoth cell in there, this nucleus, and it could grow up inside a living elephant. We, we really don't have anything close to a living dinosaur that we could do that with, even if we had an intact dinosaur cell. Darren Croft, thank you very much for talking to us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Well, that's interesting, Molly. Woolly Mammoth Revival. Bully for the woolly. Darren Croft is a professor of anatomy at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. Oh, hey, here's something that was missing but is now found. Evidence for terrestrial planets. Found. Rocky planet, hundreds of possible new planets, and miscellaneous astrophysical phenomena. Okay, but scientists haven't found another Earth-like planet. No, Molly, but they're, they're closing in on that. And meanwhile, they found, you know, hundreds of additional planets, all of which are going to be interesting, not to mention some facts about stars we didn't know before that are interesting in their own right. In fact, a lot of this stuff is coming out of NASA's Kepler mission. Kepler is a space-borne telescope that's staring at 150,000 stars looking for Earth-like worlds and finding lots of other stuff, too. My name is Natalie Battaglia. I'm the deputy science team lead for NASA's Kepler mission. Natalie, we found more than 500 planets around other stars, so-called exoplanets, but these haven't been planets like the Earth. So where are all the Earth-like planets gone missing? Where, where have they gone? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. It depends on what you define to be Earth-like. Do we talk about mass or do we talk about size, radius? If you're going to demand both, mass and size, then you're going to look at the sample of exoplanets that are also transiting because the transit gives you the size, the Doppler signal gives you the mass. So amongst the transiting planets, only a tiny handful approach the super-Earth regime. None so far that are exactly Earth-sized and Earth-massed. Okay, well, you mentioned a few things there, transiting planets. What you mean by that is that these are planets that just happen to be in an orbit that puts them in front of their star on a regular basis so we can see them make these little mini eclipses, right? Yeah, we don't see them directly as in take a picture of them. 
what we do is we infer their presence by the dimming of light that occurs if that planet in its orbit about the star happens to pass directly between our telescope and the disk of the star, thereby occulting some of the light. Okay. So by looking at how big that dip is, you can tell how big the planet is? That's exactly right. How much light is occulted depends on how big the planet is. Now, you've discovered a planet using the Kepler telescope. It's called 10b that bears quite a bit of resemblance to the Earth. It's been in the news. It's, it's, it's a headlined uh, planet. It is. Kepler 10b is a milestone for our project because it is our first rocky planet detection. And people are saying that it's the first unquestionable detection of a rocky planet uh, so far in the literature. So Kepler 10b is a planet that is about 40% larger than the Earth, 1.4 times the Earth's radius, and about 4.6 times more massive. And with the mass and the radius, you can do mass divided by volume, which is density. And it's that density measurement that tells us unquestionably that this is a rocky world. Okay, now when you say a rocky world, I mean, some listeners may think, oh, that means that the landscape would be tough to walk upon, but that's not really what you mean. All you mean is that it's so dense, it, it would sink in a big glass of water or something, so it must be made of something fairly dense, like rock. It isn't made out of the sorts of things that make up, say, Jupiter or Saturn. Yeah, it's not ice and not an ice surface, nor water, nor gas. It's something you could actually stand on. Okay. You said it's maybe four or five times the mass of the Earth, but of course that means it only has about 40 or 50 percent greater diameter. So if you wanted to fly around that planet, Kepler 10b, <laughs> it wouldn't uh, take you that much longer than to fly around the Earth. Although I don't know whether it has an atmosphere. Could you even fly around it? We don't expect it to have an atmosphere, actually. It's orbiting so close to its parent star that it takes less than one day to make a full orbit. One, one year is less than one day. One year is less than one day. Yeah, God, I hate to think how old I'd be on that planet. So, <laughs> so the temperatures, I mean, this is a, a world that is just blowtorched by its parent star. We don't expect it to have an atmosphere, especially at its age. Uh, the star that it orbits is actually similar to our sun, but older, much older. Our sun being four and a half billion years, we know this star is more than eight billion years. And in that lifetime, um, any atmosphere that this planet at one time had has probably been dissipated, probably been radiated away. Because of the uh, intensity of the sunlight. Exactly. It? That's yeah. right. Well, so this isn't, I mean, this may be sort of an Earth-sized world. I mean, it's a little uh, hunkier than our, than our planet, a little bit bigger, but it's not really Earth-like because it's entirely too toasty, right? Exactly. You know, instead of oceans of water on that sun-facing side, we're going to have oceans of molten lava. Wow. Now, Kepler's been up there for two years. It's been working like a champ. And yet the answer to this big question, how many planets are similar to the Earth, still isn't in, still missing. Why not? And when will that uh, change? When will we get the answer? We've got this gigantic catalog of candidates, planet candidates, but we know that there are astrophysical signals in nature which mimic planet transits. And so it's going to take us time to be able to disentangle which are the real planets versus which are these false positives or other astrophysical signals. But besides this task that's in front of us, we also need to be patient and wait for the full duration of the mission to play out. Because the more data that we collect, the smaller amplitude signals we can tease out of the data. So we need to collect more observations and we need to wait 
to collect more data so that we can detect things with longer orbital periods. Our Earth orbits with a one-year period, and our Earth is the analog that we're chasing after. So in order to find it, we, need, we want to observe at least three transits. That would take three full years. So we're only looking at the end of the mission, uh, four years plus another year or two to, to vet out the real planets from the false positives. Well, what does the smart money... And- I take it that's you, actually, (laughs) say when someone asks you at a cocktail party, you know, what fraction of stars have Earth-sized worlds buzzing around them? What's your estimate? I mean, we don't know. Uh, If every star has an Earth-sized planet in its habitable zone, we expect, based on this geometric probability of finding them transiting, we expect to find about 50 so that's, that's our baseline. That's what we're expecting. If we find none, that's going to tell us that Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone are not very common. Yeah. And that's, that's what we're all really waiting and hoping to find out. That would be a bummer. That okay. would be a bummer, Ooh. yes. <laughs> what a drag. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, in a way, I guess maybe I'd feel more special at breakfast. Oh, I'd rather, I'd rather <laughs> look up and, and know that we've got company out there. Well, Natalie Battaglia, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. Natalie Battaglia is a co-investigator on NASA's Kepler mission. You know, Seth, we're talking about all the things that have gone missing, but one of the big ones, sort of the elephant in the room, not the woolly mammoth, but the elephant in the room from your point of view is the signal, a signal from intelligent alien species. That is, after all, what the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is about, and you work for the SETI Institute. That is their mission. So why is ET so quiet? In other words, why is this signal missing? Well, Molly, the facts are we just haven't looked hard enough. I think it's that simple. It's far too early to say that they're not there. All we can say is that we haven't found them yet. When you say, um, yet, (laughs) what is the um? It? Many signals? More than one signal? That's actually shorthand for them. We haven't (laughs) found them yet. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of assuming that they're the members of a big species and there are billions of them on any given world, but that may not be true. Who cares? The point is we haven't found the signals yet. Yes, you're quite correct. However, we've only looked at, you know, fewer than a thousand star systems, so it's not terribly surprising that we've yet to trip across a signal. Mind you, the experiment's speeding up, so I'm optimistic. Coming up, missing links, missing particles, don't miss out. It's gone missing on Are We Alone? Make contact with science. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. (laughs) 
We're looking at science discoveries that have yet to be made, science gone missing. And the one thing that may not be in your classifieds there, Seth, is the phrase that often first comes to mind when we talk about missing in science. Missing... Link. I get it. Missing link. That's right. I felt that way when I confronted my eggs this morning, Molly, and there was no sausage on the plate. (laughs) But yes, the missing link the fossil of a transitional animal between humans and apes that shows how evolution shaped us from simians to sapiens. Although, quite honestly, we're both apes. It's just that the ones sitting behind the microphones here are a bit less furry. (laughs) At least that's what we try for. Well, that's right. And the missing link has been something anthropologists and biologists have pursued for years, right? This idea that there's something out there, one fossil that is evidence of a transitional species, just as you said. Well, Molly... I don't know why, but this discussion makes me think of that movie Planet of the Apes where Charlton Heston lands on some alien planet and he thinks that their version of humans have evolved into apes. A planet where apes evolved from men? There's got to be an answer. Of course, in the movie Planet of the Apes, there was an answer. The humans had wiped themselves out just leaving the apes and eventually the apes got smarter. Okay, so the apes didn't evolve into human, but whichever way you go, from ape to human or human to ape, the reason we haven't found the missing ape-human link is that the concept missing link itself has gone missing. I'm Leslie Alesco, and I'm an associate professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Leslie, biologists and anthropologists don't use the term missing link anymore, but that was central to evolutionary biology for years in anthropology. What happened? Okay, so there's a scientific reason why my scientists are uncomfortable with missing link, and that's because evolution is not a direct line, in a sense, that you can trace back from a mother to a mother to a mother to a mother, for example, and you do have a direct line, but when you're actually finding fossils in the, you know, in sediments in the geological record, you don't know for sure if they're direct ancestors or not, and so you don't know for sure if they're really the missing link. And, you know, and then what does that actually mean? Because if you have one missing link, what about either side of that? You, then you have two missing links. And it conveys a simplicity that doesn't exist. The idea is that then if you find a fossil mm-hmm. that is some kind of transitional species between, let's say, apes and homo sapiens or something like that, well, that's not a missing link because all it's done is you put that in place and now you have spaces on either side of it. You've just created two more missing links. So you have this infinite problem some people argue that you know, that is just you're just making more missing links but then there's another really good point to that that you know you can find species in the fossil record that while we're not sure 100% sure that they were you know intermediate between this form and this form they're probably pretty close to what it was so for example if you look back at Ardipithecus which is a genus that was found it was published back in late 2009 and what it shows is a transition of bipedalism. So this animal walks on two feet, but also has a divergent big toe. So much like, you know, still climbing in trees. And so that, you know, that's a transitional form of locomotion. So in a sense, that's a missing link between those two locomotory forms. We don't know for sure that Ardipithecus ramidus is ancestral to us. Maybe, probably, but you can't be for certain. And so in that sense, missing link can apply in, in some sense. But then you have that whole other side of scientists and, and philosophers of science who think we should just not use it because it's so laden in the, in the public's sense of this teleology, of this inner drive towards perfection. So it's better just to stay away from it. So what is teleology? 
Yeah, so teleology goes back. One of the great examples is this guy, Lamarck, and Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. And he was before Darwin, and he basically believed in that animals could change over time. So he was, in, in a sense, an evolutionist. But he needed a mechanism, and his mechanism was that animals had an inner drive to be better. So one of the classic examples would be giraffe, and giraffe have a long neck because they were always reaching up really high to reach the leaves. And so their neck would be a little bit longer because they stretched a lot, and then they passed that longer neck onto their offspring, who stretched even more, who passed a longer neck onto their offspring. So that's teleology, that there's this reason, this inner drive, and that as an animal acquires some characteristic over the course of its lifetime, it passes it on to the next generation. So everything's getting better. Now, you said that part of the debate is whether or not to use this term, because some people think they debate it on terms of accuracy or scientific accuracy. In what way would missing link, this idea of missing link, be scientifically accurate? So there are instances, well, we know, if you think back, you know, my mother gave birth to me, and somebody gave birth to her, and you keep going back half a billion years, a billion years to the beginning of life, that clearly there is an entire lineage that spans that whole way. So there have to be links, right? You know, it's generation after generation after generation. So that's accurate. But when you're looking at fossils, how do you know that the fossil you're looking at is actually on that lineage because there would be species and populations of species that didn't go anywhere. They went extinct. And hasn't the term also missing link been used to argue against evolution, saying that you've never found that transitional species that would show the direct link between, say, apes and humans or so forth, and that is the missing link, and if you can't find that species, then that's evidence that evolution, in fact, is not occurring. Which is another reason why scientists don't like to use missing link, because if you name one thing a missing link, then you've got two, one on either side of it. Because we have such an amazing record of human evolution, it's basically irrefutable. But you can parse it out to all these little, little steps in between and say, well, you don't have a link there. You don't have a link there. So in a sense, just avoid the whole topic by not using the term. Okay, so if the quest for the missing link isn't one of the big questions for anthropologists and evolutionary biologists right now, what is? What are some of the remaining questions? Well, evolutionary biology is such a big discipline, and so I think it really breaks down into into two categories. So they're really big questions from the comparative sense, so looking at animals that are alive today and asking questions about them, about what we can learn about evolutionary evolution or evolutionary biology through extant animals and organisms. And then there's questions that you get from the historical record, i.e. fossils, of what actually happened, when, where, what it looked like, and that type of thing. So it falls into two big categories. So I think, from my perspective, and granted I'm biased, <laughs> um, big questions that, that I think are going to be answered, hopefully, um, sometime soon, and really make a big difference in how we understand evolution, is how do you take 25,000 genes, which is how many on average, the estimate um, for humans, how do you make a human out of 25,000 genes? How do they interact? How does that work? And how has that evolved through time? So looking at chimpanzees and looking at gorillas and noting how similar we are, but obviously very different too. So what is the genetic mechanism of that? And then from the historical side, there's a lot of questions that would be fabulous to have answers to. So for example, we don't really know where the genus Homo comes from. So we know that there's this Australopithecus genus beforehand, but which one of the Australopithecus species or populations gave rise to genus Homo, our own genus? And then which were the earliest species within genus Homo that were actually on our lineage? So in a sense, it's asking that missing link question, but asking it in a slightly different way. 
Leslie Lusco, thank you very much for talking to us. Oh, thanks for having me on. You can find Leslie Lusco at the Department of Integrated Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Okay, I seem to be nearing the end of the classifieds here. And there seems to be one more missing that's kind of intriguing. Okay, lay it on me. Okay, this is a weighty one. Missing, tiny particle responsible for creating mass in the universe. The mass of the universe is missing? That's a lot of mass. Yeah. Reward if found, Nobel Prize in physics. Well, at least they're not being chintzy with a payoff. This sounds like the hunt for the Higgs boson to me, an elementary particle that gives mass to objects. I know it seems weird that a particle that we haven't found is what accounts for the mass of things like you and me and this pencil and planets. And <laughs> but that's particle physics for you. And there's been this race to find the Higgs boson, the Higgs, up to now. It's been between Fermilab, the atom smasher in Chicago, and on the other side of the world in Geneva, Switzerland, the Large Hadron Collider, newly built both hunting for this elusive particle until recently. When Fermilab announced it was no longer going to run its collider, budget constraints, high-energy physics doesn't come cheap. Look on eBay, you won't find a particle collider for under $35 million. But the hunt is on, and a British science reporter has been covering it in a new book, Massive, the missing particle that sparked the greatest hunt in science. I spoke with him, Ian Sample. And here's a sample interview. Ian, your book is about a hunt for... The Higgs boson. Well, I've got to ask you, what's a boson? Well, a boson, in this case, is a particle that has been postulated in 1964 and is believed to be the particle that is associated with a field that gives elementary particles mass. All right. The Higgs boson is responsible for the fact that objects have weight, have mass, right? But you know, that's that's a rather subtle concept because we just assume that anything that's really matter, something you can hold in your hand, must have mass. It's so intrinsic. I mean, why are we even asking this question? So this is a really good question because if you think you pick up your cell phone, you pick up your cat when you get in, it weighs a certain amount. And you think, well, why does it weigh what it weighs? And you think, well, what that is, it's just the sum weight of all the particles in it. But that's not really the answer. If you break it down to the smallest little bits... Beyond the atoms, if you break down past that, you end up with particles so small inside the atoms, inside the protons and neutrons that are inside the atomic nucleus. You have quarks and electrons, which, according to the early theories in physics of the standard model, without the Higgs field, they don't weigh anything. So you actually have a lot of particles you're trying to add up that don't weigh anything. So the Higgs field and the Higgs boson explain why those particles have mass. So why the original, the smallest building blocks of matter weigh anything at all. Can you explain that in some way even I could understand? I mean, you know, you, you take a particle and then suddenly you introduce this thing called the, the Higgs field and, and now suddenly it has mass. I mean, how, how am I supposed to understand that? It's really tricky, and physicists don't have the answer to this yet. Now, what we do know, I'll, let me give you an analogy, which a guy at CERN gave me, which I thought was really nice. I turned up there, it had been snowing the night before, and the guy looked, pointed out the window and said, look, imagine out there is an infinite snowfield, 3D snowfield. Now, some particles basically pass through this field as if they have skis on. They shoot through it at the speed of light, and these are particles of light. Okay, They have no mass whatsoever. Um, other particles go through it as if they've got snowshoes on. So some particles, they can kind of walk through it, they get bogged down a little bit, but they can still make progress. And then there are other particles still which go barefoot and they trudge through it, they get really bogged down. And there are some particles which are incredibly heavy 
they effectively feel this snow field more than others. So a particle's mass depends on how much it interacts with the Higgs field, how much it gets bogged down in the Higgs field. And some particles say don't touch it at all, some particles really wallow in it. That's supposed to be how these particles get mass, but it's as yet unproven because until we find the Higgs boson, it's still a theory, still an idea. So it's sort of like, a, if you will, cosmic molasses that slows some particles down so that they behave as if they have inertia, so they have mass, and then not other particles like particles of light, photons, and so forth. Was there always a Higgs field? Did that come with the Big Bang? Was it there right from the beginning? I mean, cosmic molasses is exactly how one scientist, Frank Wilczek at MIT, a Nobel Prize winner, describes it, and it's, it's a very good, good analogy. It Was it there from the beginning of time? It probably cut in about a picosecond after the, um, you can call it the Big Bang, but was it a Big Bang? I don't know. But to think about it another way, this is about when the universe was the size of a kind of a beach ball. Now, the Higgs field is there from the start, but it doesn't switch on until that point. So before the Higgs field switches on, all of the particles that are around are massless. When the Higgs field switches on, some of them, but not all of them, start getting caught up in the Higgs field and gain mass. And by doing that, as soon as those particles get mass, you can start thinking about these particles coalescing and ending up with chemistry and atoms and things. All right. So now this idea of a Higgs field, I mean, this is more than a half century old. This, this idea came from a British uh, physicist by the name of Peter Higgs, appropriately enough. But there's more to it than just the field. There's also an associated particle. How does that figure in? Well, the Higgs field is basically, if you look at it from a framework of physics called quantum field theory, which basically says electrons have an electron field and you can think of the photon having its own field the higgs particle is the quantum particle that is associated with the higgs field so the higgs field essentially lurks in the vacuum of space and if you want to look for the particles within it which quantum theory say should be there then the particles of that field are the higgs particles so they're everywhere absolutely yeah i mean you have to excite them into existence but the field is there and the field has energy in it. And so the particles are part of that. Well, maybe you've already answered this question, but my, my first thought is if they're everywhere, why is it that more than a half century after Peter Higgs says, well, maybe there are such things, we haven't found them? Purely because you need enough energy in one place to be able to excite the field to produce one of these particles. So the particle itself has a certain mass. It needs energy to make that particle so you can observe it. Now, it doesn't mean they're not being produced all over the place in the cosmos when there are high energy collisions, certainly far higher energy collisions than we can generate down here on Earth, either at Fermilab or at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. But you do need that energy to produce them. And if you aren't producing enough energy, or if you don't even know how to look for it, it's quite likely, actually, these Higgs particles are being produced in the accelerator in operation at the moment, the Large Hadron Collider. But you have to see enough of them to know you've seen it for sure. And at the moment, we don't really know what it will look like. So it's quite a tricky beast to snare. I'm talking with Ian Sample, the author of Massive, The Search for the Higgs Boson. Uh, so, Ian, this has been advertised as the raison d'etre for the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, they still haven't found it. Are they going to find it soon? Any bets? Do you have side bets with your friends? I personally expect it's going to be 2014, 2015 before there's a really cast iron discovery of this. I think people will still see signs of it before then, I would expect. But at the moment, the Large Hadron Collider is due to close down in 2012. That may change, but the current plan is to close it down in 2012 to do some maintenance on it to get it up to high energy. At the moment, it's only running at half power. Now, CERN are still in decision mode. They may just decide to run through at half power or 
they may just shut down and then come back. If they shut down and come back, they're only really going to be in the running for this seriously from 2013 onwards. I reckon a couple of years after that, then we're starting to get into interesting territory. So uh, another three, four years, we'll find the Higgs boson, presumably front page news, even though I, I doubt that Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch know much about what the Higgs boson's all about. Maybe if they'll listen to this interview, they'll learn more. What would be the consequences other than a, a, a lot of champagne drinking by physicists? It could be terrible news. If you find a Higgs particle that is just a standard model Higgs particle, there's only one of them, and you can't, from studying it, learn anything about why it is that some particles interact more with the Higgs field than others, what is actually going on with the nature of that interaction. If you can't find out anything more than the fact that the Higgs particle exists, all you've done is verify the standard model. All you've done is verify that the Higgs field exists and that it's giving mass. When you say the standard model, that's the, the model that physicists currently have of all the particles that they've discovered. Exactly. It's basically a bunch of equations that describe the behavior of the known particles. So finding just one standard model Higgs particle could be pretty disastrous because it's a bit of a dead end. What I think a lot of physicists are hoping for is that they find a whole bunch of Higgs particles, say five, which might suggest that there's something else out there, another theory that goes beyond the standard model that takes them into new territory. And physics really needs to go into new territory in an experimental sense because the theorists have got way ahead of the experimentalists at the moment. So it might be that it would be more interesting for the physicists not to find the Higgs boson. Absolutely. And it sounds devastating to say, and I'm sure politicians weep when they hear this because they're the ones who have funded this extraordinarily large and expensive machine and all of these thousands of scientists' grants and everything to do this work. But not finding a Higgs, or at least knowing that it does not exist, would be really interesting because then you have to go back to square one. You have to think, well, how on earth are these particles getting the masses that they have? And there are some other ideas on that, but they're not fully baked yet. And it would force everybody to go and look at that. And it would be a real shake-up. And that would be it's hard not to find that interesting and good fun, I think. Ian Sample, thank you so much for talking to me about this uh, weighty subject. Very good. <laughs> thank you for having me. Massive, the missing particle that sparked the greatest hunt in science is the title of British science writer Ian Sample's book. Okay, so we have the science classifieds here, and they're filled with missing objects, missing evidence, and missing explanations. But, you know, I expect it'll always be that way. The missing column won't go away. Well, that's right, because once something is found, another question just pops up, and that leads to more mysteries to be solved, and so on and so on. Well, that's it for our show, and we would be missing from your radio or earbuds if it weren't for the help from Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, Jay Weiler, and Keith Rosendahl. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. Also our listeners. Yep, that means you. So if you have comments about the program, don't be shy. Find your voice, in electronic print that is, at Are We a Blog on our website or our Facebook fan page. You've been listening to Gone Missing on Are We Alone? The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. 
Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.